0: Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 14 The Scattering of the Knights Templar. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft Podcast. Last time, we covered the Machiavellian plots of Philip IV, the Iron King of France, to destroy the French leadership of the Knights Templar. His justification to do so was the apparent heretical nature of the order, with blasphemous behaviour and satanic worship being endemic from the lowliest initiate to the Grand Master himself. As we saw last time, however, these justifications were simply an excuse. There was no evidence other than the confessions coerced from tortured and terrified men, and the accusations were logically unsound. Now, the reason for the Templars' destruction was not the revelation that they were in league with the devil, but was far more mundane in variety. The Templars were a powerful and rich entity within France that was not subject to the ambitious and absolutist Philip. This clash of the king's personality with the knights may have been unavoidable, but Philip gained further motivation from the material benefits that would be his, should the knights fall. As the Templar headquarters were in Paris, so too was a large proportion of their vast wealth, and when the knights were seized in a sudden and well-prepared assault, so too were their treasuries... Despite the Pope ordering the Templar property to be distributed to their brother order, the Knights Hospitaller, the French treasury never resurfaced in any meaningful sense. This gave rise to various tales of secret Templar gold secreted somewhere by fleeing knights, but it's much more likely, and a lot less fun, that the precious metal found its way into the French coffers and coinage. But this was all taking place in the Kingdom of France, The Templars were a vast, international organisation stretching from the Atlantic to the Levant, and while its leadership and headquarters were in France, the Templars' downfall echoed across Christendom. Today, we will be taking a look at how the various monarchs and princes reacted to the Papal Orders, first to arrest the Knights Templars in 1307, and second to announce the Order's dissolution. The reactions were mixed. Many monarchs did not believe the charges and sympathised with the knights, while others were all too happy to use papal sanction to settle old scores. We will begin in the Kingdom of England, where the young Edward II had been crowned just a few months prior to the receipt of the Pastoralis Preeminentiae in November 1307. Edward was in no rush to begin the arrests. His father, Edward I, the Hammer of the Scots, had been comrades in arms with the Templars, in constant correspondence with Master de Molay until his death, leading his son to have no strong desire to persecute his late father's friends. This lack of royal hostility was helped by the fact that the Templars were not prevalent in England, certainly not to the same extent as they were in France, and the English economy was itself in a better state than the French so the temptation for monetary gain was possibly less strong for Edward. More interesting is how well Edward resisted the pressure to act from Philip, who was, of course, to be Edward's father-in-law, and would have been a strong force to resist as a newly crowned sovereign. Edward did not act on the papal order until January of 1308, and at this point he relented to the constant pressure from the pope and the French king to finally act, Roughly 150 members of the Templar order, only 15 of which were knights, were arrested across the country, although their conditions were on another world from their brothers in France. This was no accident. Edward had specifically insisted in his orders to his bailiffs that the Templars were not to be confined in, quote, hard and vile prison, end quote. The prisoners, such as they were, were paid a daily stipend for their trouble, and some, such as the Master of the Order in England, William de la More, were allowed unsupervised excursions outside of the cities they were meant to be imprisoned in. Gradually, even these loose restrictions on the Templars were relaxed, with rents from Templar holdings being returned to de la More and his companions. Even after Edward's wedding to Princess Isabel, Philip's daughter, and the pressure that was undoubtedly applied to Edward to crack down on the order by his new father-in-law, the English king was particularly lethargic in bringing the Templars to trial. This changed in November of 1308, when de la More and his fellow Templars that had gradually been acclimatising to freedom were rearrested. The reasons for this dramatic change in attitude have been suggested to range from the unrelenting pressure from Philip and Clement for stronger action, combined with internal dissent from Edward's barons and clergy, and the conflict over Edward's favourite, Pierre's Gaveston, who Edward had exiled from England to try and appease his barons. They believed Gaveston to be too dominant an influence over the kingdom. To try and gain papal approval to recall his closest friend, Edward made several monetary and political concessions to the pontiff, including jewels and cash to the Pope himself, the granting of land to the Pope's relatives, and the release of two bishops from a prison they had resided in for years. It is highly likely that stronger measures against the Templars were part of this deal. The efforts worked, and Clement lifted a proposed excommunication against Gaveston in 1309, allowing the favourite to return to England from Ireland where, after repeatedly being exiled and then returning, he was murdered by a group of disgruntled nobles in 1312. He probably should have stayed in Ireland. At this point, the Templars in England had been nominally imprisoned for 20 months, although being paid for the trouble and having relatively free movement, it hardly compared to what their brothers were experiencing in France. Still, The call was made by Edward for the Templars in custody throughout England to be brought to the urban centres of London, Lincoln, and York, to be presented before the papal inquisitors in October and November of 1309. It actually took two attempts, three months apart, to fully arrest all the Templars. It has been suggested by the historian Geoffrey Hamilton that the requirement of a repeated arrest order meant that the Templars were still being kept under the loosest guard possible allowing them to meander about on ordinary business, and some clearly slipped away from their guards with a nudge and a wink. At these trials, none of the accused would admit to any of the charges levelled against their order, and the Inquisitors could also not convince any recent initiates to break their oaths and leave their new brotherhood. Torture was required, and the Inquisitors petitioned the king to allow ecclesiastical practices. A euphemism for torture, which the king begrudgingly allowed. However, Edward had the process overseen by a loyal seneschal, who was known to be doubtful of the charges and shared his liege's sympathy for the Templars. There were also repeated references to the freedoms the Templars had previously enjoyed—those of free movement and the receipt of funds—continuing until January 1311, despite the torture and the clearly awful conditions of their imprisonment, no confessions were forthcoming, and the Inquisitors wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury suggesting more drastic measures, such as removing the Templars from the custody of royal agents, who supposedly were hampering the papal efforts to torture confessions out of them. They also suggested moving the Templars to France, where their ecclesiastical processes could be more rigorously conducted, and a propaganda campaign to sway the English public and nobles against the Templars, as had happened in France at the States-General and Ecclesiastical Councils. Edward resisted all of these suggestions, acting like a dead weight, holding back any further papal interference through his apparent indifference to the trials. Eventually, in June 1311, three Templars did confess to different charges, The aftermath of these trials was far from catastrophic for Templars in England. The vast majority were dispersed throughout England, their daily stipends still in effect, with only Master de la More and another high-ranking Templar, Imbert Blanc, remaining in custody in the Tower of London. De la More would die in the Tower in 1312, while Blanc disappears from the record after Edward orders him transferred to Canterbury in 1313. Edward himself would manage to hold on to much of the Templar wealth in England, and prevent it being given to the Knights Hospitaller, although this monetary gain was merely a coincidence of the suppression of the English Templars, rather than the reason for such suppression as in France. For the Christian kingdoms of Iberia, the Templars had been instrumental in the Reconquista, the centuries-long conflict between the Christian and Muslim states of the peninsula. The Reconquista would continue until the fall of Granada in 1492, but the Templars, among other Christian Holy Orders, had played a key role in the recent successes of Catholic kingdoms. For our purposes, we will limit ourselves to examining the actions of King Denis of Portugal. When the orders came from Avignon to arrest the Templars, Denis began legal proceedings against the order, but not with the gusto expected his main priority, in 1307 at least, was to recover two large portions of Portuguese territory from the knights, the towns of Sura and Idanha e Velha. Apologies to any Portuguese listeners for those attempts, as well as my pronunciation of King Denis. It might very well be Denis, but that doesn't sound quite right for a Portuguese king. The royal argument was essentially, by right, All territory in Portugal belonged to the crown, and the Templars had been granted their use temporarily by that crown. The master of the knights in Portugal, Vasco Fernandes, vainly used the defence that the Templars were exempt from any authority but the Pope, and so no mere Portuguese court could exercise any jurisdiction over them. This was so 1256, and held about as much water as a sieve. Fernandez then requested a delay of nine months on the proceedings, in order for the Grand Master, Jacques de Molay, to attend and present documents supporting the knight's case. This too was ambitious. There was not a chance that Philip was going to let de Molay out of his sight, let alone France. When the Grand Master failed to materialise, the court duly ruled in the Crown's favour and the territories defaulted to the king. Over the following three years, further Templar holdings were legally seized and reappropriated to the Portuguese crown, roughly 15% of the Templars' territory in Portugal, according to Dr. Clive Porro in his chapter on Portugal in the Debate on the Trial of the Templars. More importantly, Denise had set the precedent that secular courts had jurisdiction over the Order's lands in his kingdom. Notably, over 1310 and 1311, Denise joined James of Aragon and Fernando of Castile in a joint policy towards the papacy. In any discussions of the Templar territory, each king would support each other's right to claim it. Of course, this agreement was guaranteed by a fine of 30,000 silver marks in the event of non-compliance, in case Denise was a menace, What this united front meant was that the Iberian kings were able to confront both Philip and the Pope on the issue of where the territory would go. Clement and, at least outwardly, Philip, both wished for the Templar property to be transferred to the Hospitallers, their sister order. But the Iberian representatives remained firm in their opposition to this idea, and successfully managed to prevent any such merger in Portugal, Castile, Aragon, or Majorca. How they managed this was not simply stubbornly repeating, we want it, we want it, we want it, like a suitably royal child, but rather through an accumulation of evidence to support their claims to true ownership, which miraculously sprung up during this time. A Portuguese investigation concluded with five main findings in spring 1314. One was that the Templars had asked the king for the means to fight the Moors upon their first arrival in Portugal that these grants were only to be continued for the duration of the war with the Muslims, that the crown remained the true overlord of these territories, the crown maintained supervision of the master in the kingdom, and the Templars were subservient to the king. How true all of this is, is up for debate. I find it hard to believe that such convenient revelations appeared just when the Iberian kings were fighting their case, and they fly in the face of papal bulls declaring the rights and privileges of the Templars. More documents appeared over the following years which further supported royal supremacy over Templar holdings. It might be expected that, with such a cut-and-dry case, Denise was going to walk away with all of the Templar land. However, domestic strife weakened Denise's diplomatic position. His trueborn and his bastard sons, both called Afonso, had a few arguments over who Daddy loved more, and these arguments naturally escalated to full-blown military conflicts. Denise, distracted by these, had to settle for something less than complete royal appropriation of the Templar holdings. In March 1309, Pope John XXII's bull, Ad Ia Ex Quibus, founded a new military order, the Order of Christ, which was maybe, kind of, definitely a rebranding of the Portuguese Knights Templar. The new order received the remaining Templar territories, which Denise had not been able to wholly subjugate, and many of the now disgraced Templar Knights were tacitly allowed to join this new order. To cap off our examination of the trial and destruction of the Knights Templar, we will examine the events in the last bastion the Templars could claim to be fighting a crusade, Cyprus. The island of Cyprus, situated in the far northeast of the Mediterranean Sea, was a formerly Roman territory that had been seized by Richard the Lionheart from an imperial pretender during the Third Crusade, who in turn sold the entire island to the Knights Templar for a vast sum of money. The Templars ruled the island for roughly a year, before a revolt led them to return the island back to Richard. Now Richard didn't particularly want such a troublesome holding to worry about, and so granted it to his friend and vassal, a great guy. Guy of Lusignan was his name, and being king of Cyprus was now his game. The Lusignan ruled the island for another 400 years, but the Templars still held significant holdings from their short-lived rule which only grew in size as donations poured in over time. After their expulsion from the Holy Land, Cyprus was the closest point to the Holy Land where the Templars had a presence, and so it had a number of active Templars that were perpetually on a war footing. Their intention, after all, was to return in force to the Holy Land, at the vanguard of a new crusade, and so they were in no mood to hang up their tabards. Not that they were allowed to, anyway. The Templars were also an active part of Cypriot politics, to the point that the ruler of Cyprus in 1307 was a man the Templars had helped install in a coup d'etat, Amori of Tyre. Amori had overthrown his brother and made himself effectively regent of the kingdom, with his brother, King Henry II, imprisoned, safely out of the way. Initially, the coup was popular, but within a few years' public opinion, particularly the opinions of the nobles, began to turn against Amori. In 1306, Grand Master Molay had loaned 50,000 bezants, gold coins from either Arabia or the Roman Empire, to help support his ally, and assisted in negotiations on the maintenance of the now suspended King Henry. In 1308, when the papal decree calling for the arrest of the Templars was en route to the island, the Marshal of the Templars was assisting Amori in reducing the support for the exiled king amongst the nobles. The authority and respect that the Templars commanded in the diplomatic arena, which we discussed in episode 12, had waned but was far from gone. The Templars were a steadfast ally of the regime in Cyprus, a source of money and political support for Amori that was sorely needed, which makes the next few events particularly interesting. When the Pastorales Preeminentiae arrived on the island on the 12th of May 1308, Amori immediately acted on it. He sent one of his most loyal supporters, that wasn't a Templar, to the Templar headquarters in the city of Limassol, firmly asking the knights to surrender both their weapons and their horses, and accept confinement in the house of an archbishop. The marshal that had assisted Amori just weeks earlier, Amon dio Soleil, attempted to negotiate. Confinement on a rural estate, under guard, but we keep our swords and assets. While this might have worked in England, the idea of leaving a military order on their own land, with all of their weapons and funds, did not quite fit with Amori's concept of in-custody. A week after the papal decree was received, and after Amon had suggested the nominal imprisonment, Amori issued commands to his kingdom, forbidding anyone from receiving funds from the Templars, or, if they had already received funds for a service, forbade them from continuing that service. At the same time, the regent sent a bishop to the knights in Limassol. Again, He demanded they follow his original order and submit themselves to the commands of the Pope. If they did not, he would come to arrest them. If they resisted, they would be killed. This negotiating stance, do this my way, or, you know, you die, seemed to work, and the Templars announced they would surrender in four months' time, to allow for Amori to receive further instructions from the Pope. While waiting for these instructions, representatives of the Templars and of Amori met to try and find a solution, which resulted in the Templars making a declaration of Orthodox belief and loyalty to Christendom, and the Cypriot church exclaiming their past shows of piety. Amori oversaw the declarations and had the words translated to both Greek and French for the benefit of all those present. Presumably, there was much hugging, And sympathy doled out on both sides, this was just a misunderstanding, it would surely be worked out soon. While all of this was happening, Amori had arranged for a force of knights and infantry to occupy Limassol, the seat of Templar power. Either they did not succeed, or they only succeeded in seizing the city and not the Templar citadel, because the next day Amori read aloud the papal letters he had received. That the Knights Templar, despite their assertions to the contrary, had already been found to be heretics in France, and he was ordered to seize their property. On the 29th of May, Amori dispatched a mixed force of his own men, along with members of the Franciscan and Dominican orders, as well as Knights Hospitala, to Nicosia, to seize the Templar assets and take an inventory. While doing so, the Cypriot forces closed a Templar church and cut the bell rope, preventing church services from being conducted. This action led to condemnation from, surprisingly, the exiled King Henry. He had never been on good terms with the Order even before they existed in his coup. What a turnaround. The man who had lost his throne to the Templars was now showing support for them, while he who had benefited from the actions of the Order was now seeking to destroy them. With the seizure of Nicosia, any consideration of compromise between the Templars and the Cypriots was gone. Amori raised his personal levies and those of his vassals, and the Templars armed themselves from their substantial armoury. It almost came to war, but somehow the Cypriot commanders manoeuvred the Templars back inside their citadel, which they then besieged. After a show of resistance, the Templars capitulated on the 1st of June. The citadel was occupied and a full inventory taken. A vast amount of wealth was found within, but this was still a fraction of what was believed to have been at the Templars' disposal, and again, theories circulated quickly of hidden Templar treasure, much like in France. The Templars themselves were split into two groups and separated, under guard in different parts of the island. They were treated well, But, when rumours surfaced that a naval force was en route to assist in their escape, the highest-ranking members were isolated in a small village under heavy guard, lest they make more communications with the outside world. After this, sources are unclear of the process of the trial of the Templars in Cyprus. Amori was assassinated in 1310, and there were rumours that his death had been planned by nobles, ostensibly gathering to discuss the trial of the Templars, although this is unsubstantiated. Amon, the Marshal of the Templars, was named in a plot to seize the island for Amori's son, Hugh, which would be surprising considering the late regent's firm stance against the order. For this, the Marshal was imprisoned until his death in 1316. Other Templars, however, appear to have been treated leniently, and allowed to return home unmolested. All of these events are interesting, since the potential motivations for both sides are much less clear than in Western Europe. Amori turned against his former allies at the first word from Avignon, allies who had been assisting him from the start of a rule that would not have even been possible without them. Possible reasons for this zealous dismantling of the Templar order in Cyprus are that Amori wished to escape the loan he had received in 1306 that he wanted to seize the lands that the Order held, or that he was naturally concerned about a large, heavily armed force active within his lands. For Peter Edbury, two other concerns appeared to take precedent for Amore's decision. Firstly, was a fear that defying the authority of both the Pope as well as the French King would be calamitous in the event of a French-led crusade. It was a crusade that had given his family the kingdom, it could very easily take it away. The French royal family had a tenuous claim on the island from a disputed succession half a century ago, but it was a claim nonetheless. Best not antagonise a king that was well known for putting the interests of his family above all else. The second reason proposed by Edbury is that the Templars, while active supporters of Amori's reign, were not Cypriots. They had no major local noble families in their brotherhood, no local supporters of their own, and they were majorly disliked by the Cypriot nobility. Attacking them would hopefully provide Amori with some much-needed goodwill from his landed nobles, although this doesn't seem to have worked considering the assassination. In regards to the Templars, the inventories taken by Amori's agents showed a large amount of arms and supplies, and there were a significant number of warriors concentrated in their headquarters. These were professional soldiers, trained and supplied for war. If they wanted to fight Amori, they most likely could have forced a stalemate, or even forced him to back down. As it was, they did not, and instead submitted themselves to the custody of the man to whom they'd given a regency. If I was Amon, rotting in his prison, I would have wondered if I made the right choice. While these three episodes of the Night's Templar haven't included much in the way of witchcraft, their relevance to a podcast called The History of Witchcraft should be clear enough. Yes, among the accusations were charges similar to those found in later witch trials, those of service to the devil, horrifying behaviour and sin, and the inversion of holy symbolism. However, it is the motivations for the trials and the effectiveness of torture, and the credulity of the prosecutors, which are most similar to the trials of the Century of Fire. The guilt of the Templars was not rigorously questioned until at least the 18th century, and even in Cohen's Europe's Inner Demons, published in the 70s, he complains that Philip's role in the trials has largely been overlooked. Similarly, King Denise of Portugal has been traditionally considered a staunch ally of the Templars, resisting papal and French pressure to suppress them until it was no longer possible. Yet, Clive Porrow argues that his actions to recover Templar lands present him as one of the Templar's earliest and most dangerous adversaries, even in comparison with Philip the Iron King. These reasons in mind, it's also a cracking story, one that deserves to be known more, especially considering the Templar's role as villains or heroes in modern-day media. Before I finish today's episode, I have a bit of admin to cover. No, don't pause, this is important. Still here? It's now been about four months since I relaunched the history of witchcraft, and this month the show should surpass 10,000 monthly downloads, which is just incredible. Just looking at the stats graph puts my heart all aflutter, and I have to be honest, graphs don't normally do that for me, that's why I got into history rather than maths. I've got some really fascinating topics lined up for the next few months, which I'm really excited to get my teeth into. All I ask is that if you enjoy The History of Witchcraft, help it grow. Leave a quick review on iTunes or Stitcher or whichever app you use, or share it with a friend or a colleague who you think will find it interesting. These are by far the best ways for a history podcast to grow, and I appreciate every single new download. Remember that the show has a website, Facebook and Twitter page, as well as a Patreon. The intro and outro music has been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thanks again for listening.